Hey everyone, this is the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast, a Spotify and Villa Romana Network production. I'm Alan Nevin. And I'm Joey Santa. Joey, so this drink in front of us looks delicious. I'm quite thirsty. I want to dive into it. Give me a quick roundup, and then we'll explain more when Taylor's on. Great. Well, it's actually delicious. It's a gin-based drink, which is his favorite alcohol. His wife is from the UK, so I got inspired by that. Turned it into a little bit of a gin pims cup, and um, we'll talk more about it when he comes on. Great. I'm I'm diving in because this looks quite good. We're in our second week already. I know. Crazy. It's going. Fast. Uh, yeah, I mean, as long as uh, well. No, wait a minute. Did the year go by fast, or was it slow as hell? Did twenty two twenty two really? It dragged. Well, that's it because dragged. you had issues going on. In fact, don't you have some good news you want to talk about? It's been an interesting year for me, for sure. Twenty two came with a lot of stuff, but I have to say, and you know me for a long time, I'm not one to share my problems. I never have been, and I believe that those are our own. But what I will share is my solution, and I believe that helps other people with their problems. And I battled cancer this year, and I rang my bell last week, and it um, freed me of a lot of things. And one of the things was um, the cancer that I was going through. I had surgery, and then I had the radiation, and I finished the radiation. And so far, everything looks good and, and feels good. So that's where I'm at, and I learned a lot from this year who my true friends are, who my true friends, quote-unquote, were not, but who I am and uh, where I'm going to be for the rest of my life, and that's within myself, surrounded by the people I love and love me. So there you go. And as I told you, I'm so excited because now your hair will come back. In my nose. God, you know, you can't even celebrate one thing and feel good about something without somebody bringing you right back down again. No, just kidding. Um, I want to say this, though. So that afternoon, I rang the bell, and that evening, I invited all the nurses and doctors that have treated me, been kind, have just been so consistent with their generosity and their patience and their love and affection and their bedside manner, it has just been the most amazing experience. And, you know, I don't think many people look at something so devastating as a cancer diagnosis and treatment and surgery and all of the things that go with it. You know, everybody or most people find the negative or the bellyache. I found the gratitude and the joy of what it brought. And it brought me closer to myself, closer to my family, my true friends. And those were revealed one by one. And um, and the new friends. How many that I've are you down to? Two. Uh, I'm kidding. And my and the new friends that have become family that I've made during this entire process, and many of them are the doctors and the nurses that have taken exceptional care of me and my partner Andrew, my husband, who has been there without blinking for every appointment, for every treatment, and with the encouragement and the love that you couldn't even imagine receiving, let alone that it exists in this world, and it does. Yeah, no, so, it was great. It was a lovely party. It was. We, we I didn't get a piano to stay player, very long. A saxophone player, dinner. We had cocktails, hors d'oeuvres, lots of cocktails, lots of hors d'oeuvres. And you left early. And I didn't have any cocktails. You were taking your flight test the next day. I took day, my test the next which day. Which I believe you passed. I passed. 85%? An 85% score. Wow. Well, that should get you a job on a 
smaller airline. <laughs> Propeller plane. No, I was kidding. thinking a much larger airline. <laughs> yeah. Malaysia Air. <laughs> oh, God, that's awful. Forgive me, Lord. I didn't say that. Cut that out. Uh-huh. And you're flying tomorrow. I am flying tomorrow, yes. Aren't you glad I'm not your pilot? <laughs> Very. No, I flew with you, and I loved it. The only thing I was a little concerned about, that plane, the door was kind of open a little bit. Was that on purpose? What was that? The door, was it open? No, it had a little space there. Yeah, a little space there, like it was, you know, it was wobbling a little bit as we were. They're old plane. You know, they're old trainer planes. Well, train you to what? Wear a parachute? Didn't you? (laughs) I swear. Anyway, you, congratulations. For I'm sure very, you should I'm, have. I'm very proud of you for becoming a pilot. It's Yeah, I've got one more to go. I've got my flying test. This was the written test, and then yeah. I'm done. So. No, that's, that's amazing. And, and a couple podcasts will be announcing that. Yes, we will. And I'm excited about it. I mean, it's been it's taken me longer than I expected because when you do it, you really got to spend the time, and I'm busy, and I travel, and the work, and, you know, I, if I had nothing to do, and, you know, like some people come home and they can watch TV all night and I can't. And But if I could, you know, I could sit down and I could be reading my flight things and picking out airplanes and doing all. You know, I got a billion other things to do. So it's taken me a little longer. Well, it's hard because I know you for so long and I know that you're you are completely cerebral. See, I'm physical in my work. So when I come home, my body's tired, but my brain is relaxed. You know, so I can rel- I could lay down, I could watch TV, I could sort of just be, and then the body will follow. You know, plus the massage doesn't hurt. But uh, you are completely cerebral. You know, everything is so turning off your brain. Is impossible. Th- that's almost impossible. Yeah, I know. So by the time you quiet that down, not to mention you you read for a living. You know, I mean, you're constantly reading, you're constantly catching up on things. So to read something else and study after you've just knock two books out and all the contracts and the paperwork and all of that stuff. It's just got to be mind boggling, no pun intended. But yeah, yeah. I, I thank God I could just, you know, woosah away. I might have to think of a recipe or two that takes me three minutes. No, I mean, that's why for me, it's a bigger, you know, for uh, listen, for someone else, it's an accomplishment. But for me, it was a bigger accomplishment because I thought, am I ever going to get this done? Yeah. So I feel good about it. Anyway. Well, I'm proud of you, just so you know. And I will always be your passenger. Thank I you. I will be proud to fly with you. Thank proud you. Proud bird. Well, we just mentioned you're flying tomorrow. Where? What, what are you doing? I am flying tomorrow. My flight leaves. Where at, are you uh, going? I'm going to Palm Beach, Florida. Oh, of course. You're seeing Donnie and Milani. I'm staying with Donnie and Marie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. But strangely enough... The house that I will be staying at is on the beach in Palm Beach, right down the street from Donald and Melania. So I imagine my reception is not going to be as warm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, it's going to be a beautiful uh, little trip. I'm actually just taking an exhale for after the treatment and stuff. I wanted to go and relax a little bit. So my dear friends, Mark and Julie, live in Palm Beach, and they invited me to come down and spend the weekend, a nice long weekend, with them. And uh, so I said, okay, good. So I bought a ticket, booked it, and I hop on tomorrow, and I'll be back uh, in four days, five days. Well, I really want to hear about the Mar-a-Lago dinner, because I know they'll invite you, because you've always been so kind about them. Yes. Will there be a food truck parked in the driveway (laughs) that I'll be operating most likely? McDonald's. McDonald's truck will be delivering. 
No, um, I will. Uh, well, we haven't talked about. I'll be that dining actually. with the Bidens. Huh? The ele- we haven't talked about the elections. They the elections, you know, were a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And um, interesting. I mean, I think it was interesting for everybody because they were a surprise. I think everybody had dug in and thought there was going to be a big change, and you know, so. It, they were interesting as a midterm well, election. Well, there is a change. There is a change, and it's a big change. I mean, and, you know, Nancy Pelosi stepped down, and, you know, there's a lot of things, she but it wasn't. To. Well, I know. <laughs> but, I mean, she did it gracefully. Let me tell you, say what you want about that woman, but she kept it together for a long time. She really did. So, And, and all she's been through recently with all this other madness, I mean, it's just, I just don't recognize the world, but this conversation is not about that. Yes, the elections came. It wasn't the red wave. Right. That they expected, and um, I don't think it should have been either or, and it isn't either or. But let's see, maybe that there is enough left in the red that we could come together and finally work together. If we could just get rid of some of that blood. I think what has happened, I think some good things came out of this midterm, because as you and I know, a lot of our Republican friends had turned on him and realized he wasn't the guy for them. And I think the Republican Party got a little wake-up call that that he's not the guy to rally around. And now they can maybe find a candidate that, you know, should be in that position, will help people, and can run the country. And, you know, you and I, we voted Republican before. And if it's the right person, it's the right Absolutely. person. Absolutely. I will vote Republican again. It's never been an issue for me what party it was. Yeah, it's about the person. It's about the person. And this person turned out to be not a, in my opinion, not a stable genius. <laughs> Mr. Ed is a stable genius. <laughs> well, he is not. I mean, there is Arizona. We, you know, she missed out, which is too bad because we really liked her. Oh, Miss Lake? Yeah, Carrie Drowning Lake. Carrie Drowning in the Lake. Carrie Drowning in the Lake, yes. Who refuses to concede, or so far anyway, maybe she has now. I haven't heard from her lately. I think somebody was sending her a life raft. Right. Well, not bright enough to look at what happened. A lifesaver, I'm sorry. (laughs) Cherry-flavored. But not bright enough to look around and see that tying your boat to that dock. To the Titanic? To that dock. (laughs) To the Titanic. Was not going to be the thing, and I think her career is over uh, because eh, people are like, we went through a phase. I feel good. I think people thought, okay, it didn't work, and let's get back to normalcy and get back to a candidate that can get some things done. And can we, and can we, sorry to interrupt, but can we just have people that that is their, that is what they're meant to do. I mean, we need people that are in politics. I just can't do another reality star or some ex-football player or, or some librarian. Oh, no. Uh, I, I mean, wh- where does this – it's like if I wanted to be a doctor, for example, okay, and I just showed up at Cedar sinai in a white coat, but I never went to school. I didn't practice anything, but I, got a, I have a scalpel and a white coat. Or even read a book about it. Uh, oh, oh g- g- read a book? Yeah, I mean, just not a pamphlet. Well, there are audio books for that. For some of those oh, people. I mean, but, but you understand what I'm saying? That's like you became a pilot because you studied and you did everything you were supposed to do. You just didn't steal a plane from John Wayne Airport. Well, well this month. Allegedly. <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm saying? No, I get it. And I think, you know, the funny thing is, I think that the Republicans made a huge mistake because I think if they had put candidates in 
that were more moderate, they would have had the red wave. Because I think that the, the Republicans that turned away were looking for that moderate to vote for. And so many of those races were so close that had they put in a more moderate rather than one of those extreme people, they would have won those seats. Yes, most likely. Yeah. But, you know, and, and we, we made mistakes, too. Or the Democrats. I won't use that word Dems. I hate it. We but the or, or we. Or they or whatever. The Democrats made a mistake, too. And also, we've just been inundated with so much stuff. And and really nobody to to grasp onto and feel like to champion us or any real cause. Right. Well, I don't remember 20 years ago politics being so pervasive in our conversations. Do you? No. It came up. You know, it st- it started a year before the elections. You started hearing things. Oh. It then ramped up like you know four to five months before mm-hmm. the election. Now two years ahead, you know, starting to hear. It feels like it's constantly in your life because now this election has just ended, and they're already now talking about 2024. And of course, the new season of The Crown began. Yeah, which I haven't watched. Yeah, yet. it's quite interesting. Most of it um, now we're with Diana and Charles, so it's mm-hmm. very interesting. And the actress, of course, it escapes me right now her name. Um, is I hear she's quite good. Wonderful. I mean. Mm-hmm. Y- you almost think like, oh, my God, I almost feel like a little embarrassed that I, I'm invading privacy because I, I feel like I'm, her voice is exactly Diana. And her look at certain angles is, is dead on. So, I mean, but her acting is quite good. And it's, it's quite interesting how they portray this and how they reveal certain things along the way. I mean, I, I know a lot of it has to just be dramatic license because you couldn't possibly be privy to any of real conversations that they've had. But it's historically in tune, and um, yeah, I've been I've been enjoying it's, it. It's historically inspired. Yeah, it is. But um, but in the writing, it's at least in keeping with what right. we do know. And I'm already uh, more than halfway through it. I mean, I binged it, so I've got about four more episodes to complete the season. So oh yeah, I haven't, I, I haven't even started because we watched The Devil's Hour, which now see I have not um, seen that, which we really liked. Yeah, really liked it, and uh, so we've been doing that. And I, you know, I, you know, we're still following the Lotus Hotel each week and all of these things. Yeah, that's good. So I love Jennifer Coolidge. She's a hoot to me. She is a hoot. She Do is you, a hoot. I don't know if we, <laughs> she just cracks me up with her expressions and the way she speaks. Uh, I mean, she, I, she'd be a blast to go do tequila with, wouldn't she? Maybe we'll see. It could all be persona. Well, even still, she could just pretend like she's a blast to do tequila with. Yeah. I'm good with that. Most of my friends are phonies anyway. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think I do so much tequila with them? Oh, her again. Why didn't you ask her on the podcast? I will. So As a matter of fact, I'll call her now. She's on speed dial. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> have her on. We have such a great show in front of us. We don't want to miss that much of it. And he is amazing. Let me tell you. We have had quite a few guests on our show. But Taylor Hackford, I was so relaxed with him. He was in person, so comfortable, uh, spoke so eloquently, and just in, I, I one of my favorite interviews, honestly. And I have so much respect for him as a director, as, you know, uh, I mean, he's just brilliant. And, yeah. and the wife of Helen Mirren, who I'm a huge fan of. No, he's the husband of Helen Mirren. On certain days. <laughs> on Tuesdays. She wears Thursdays. her pants. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. He's been nothing but charming and calm and easy mm-hmm. 
to work with. He's a lovely guy. And he's got a lot of layers to him. I mean, how he loves jazz. He lived in New Orleans. I mean, all of his passions, food, music, Latin music especially. He's a huge fan. Yeah. Uh, amazing. I mean, Yeah, he really started off in music. And for those that don't recognize him by name, he's directed some amazing movies. Uh, La Bamba. Mm-hmm. Ray, which Ray nominated for the Academy Award about Ray Charles, yeah, uh, officer, officer and, and a gentleman. gentleman, among many others, yeah, and it's a terrific interview. He's a great guy. He's a, an amazing storyteller, which yeah. is probably what makes him such a good director. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a sip of the, our drink that I'm really loving. In fact, you may need to pour me a second one during the break. Yeah, it goes down pretty quick and easily. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, wait, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> You've thrown me off my <laughs> game here. <laughs> so, when we come back, we've got Taylor Hackford and a second drink. Okay, we're back. We are really pleased to have with us a director, producer, writer. There's probably other things I'm missing. <laughs> That's good enough. Taylor Hackford. And, you know, our theme today is changing Hollywood, and he's worked in Hollywood for many, many years. And we've got lots of questions for him, and we're going to get started. We have these drinks sitting in front of us. What is this drink you have made today, Joey? Okay, so I a little birdie told me that you like Hendrix. And as it's a great gin, I also like it. So rather than doing just a cucumber martini, which, you know, is easy, I kind of took a little bit advantage of a Pimm's cup. Ooh. You know, I know you spend a lot of time in the UK. I love Pimm's. I love Pimm's. So me too. And I thought it'd be refreshing. So I I did that. I added a little bit of Pimm's. I added some fresh lemon, made a fresh lemonade to go in it, and then uh, mulled the um, cucumber. And then just topped it off with just a little bit of like a lemon lime soda to give it a fizz and... And it's called I see the way you guys work. It's called uh, uh, yeah. get them drunk, loosen their tongue, <laughs> and uh, you know I better be b- aware of both of you. Yeah, you better we, watch out. We would never and do that's such why a we, thing. We have a little bit of distance between us. You know, we don't want our hands to be creeping around. Um, we have we've been accused of that before. <laughs> well, Alan has. So yeah, so the mulled cucumber, etc., and then a little bit of the lemon lime soda just to give it a, a punch at the end. Great. And. Uh, well, I'm going to I'm going yeah, to so cheers. Give it a taste. Cheers. Cheers. Let's see how he did here. Delicious. Mm-hmm. I don't Ooh, think there's good. any gin in here, is there? Oh yeah. And I put a good two shots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have that. There's always that more elbow. where that came from. Those are the most dangerous, where you have no idea there's anything in. Right, there. where it's like juice until you get up. Just <laughs> yeah. date rape. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this cocktail comes with a rape kit at the end instead of a check. <laughs> Oops. All right, Joey. Now, I know you are anxious to get your questions out there. Yes. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. As my father, who was also an actor and director, he loved your work very much. Hmm. And he uh, respected you a great deal. And um, my question uh, is simply, are you as passionate about making movies now as you were when you started? Absolutely. Um, Probably more so. Mm -hmm. You know, when you first start, you just... I come out of documentaries. Right. I was a newsman. Mm-hmm. I did, uh, you know, uh, music for television, you know, uninterrupted, you know, shooting concerts. So, you know, my background was disparate and at the same time 
what I was doing every night was going to a double feature, seeing four, five, six feature films on the weekend in the art houses, dreaming about the fact that I'd love to be a director someday. Mm -hmm. um, not that I didn't like being a journalist. I did. But I, it was what my dream was, never thinking that I have a chance. So when, you, when you're there, of course, you pay them for the opportunity, but you never think it's going to happen. When it happens, you're over the moon, but you know nothing. You know, the, the, the truth is that every director who makes their first film, um, everybody in the crew knows more about filmmaking than they do. I mean, I, you can read, sure. you can do, but it's, it's called practical experience. And when you go out there, I can guarantee you the line that every director that's just completed their first film says. It's ubiquitous. It's true. Which is, if I knew at the beginning of the film what I know now, it would be a better film because you're learning in the process. Right. And you want to go back and do it again. That's yeah. what you would love to be able to do. <laughs> well, there was that old, that old adage to be eternally rewritten. Well, it's yeah. it's basically the, the the truth. And I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little aside, which is interesting. The first film I made was called The Idol Maker. It was about the making of rock and roll mm -hmm. idols with Ray Sharkey. Ray Sharkey. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, Basically, I, you know, I storyboarded the whole movie. I had everything set, and I had a, a very, I had two good producers, really good producers, Gene Kirkwood and Howard Koch Jr., who is now called Hawk Jr., <laughs> Hawk Koch Jr. But regardless, um, you know, I was prepared. I thought, but I had a first AD who, you know, had worked with everybody. You know, Pat Peckinpah. Sure. Worked, I think he started with John Ford. He'd been around for a long time. Wow. Tong, lank, lanky cowboy. And then I had a cinematographer who was Polish, um, dark, small, dark, very in Eastern European. Mm -hmm. And both of them had done a lot of films. So I show my storyboards, and you know the the um, uh, the pole, the cinematographer. He just closed his eyes, lowered his head, and shook it like this. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my God. And I went, what, what, what? Well, if you want to make it like this, it's okay, but it's very pedestrian. <laughs> pedestrian, what do you mean? No, it, if you do it, you know, for instance, this is between two lovers. You put them across the street. The cars are going by. The sun is coming by. It's, it's a beautiful frame. And I'm going, well, okay, and I take his ideas. And then I go over the same day to the first AD, and I show him my boards. And his response is entirely different because his style is different. He's right, a cowboy. Right. Jesus Christ! I can't fucking believe it! <laughs> what, what, what? Well, I mean, come on. It's just so common. And I'm going, oh, it is? <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're there the first day as, as a, a, you know, you don't, you don't really, I mean, I've made a lot of documentaries. I've made a lot of reports. I'd seen a lot of movies. I thought I knew what I was doing. But these are professionals who have a lot of experience. So I deferred my first day on the mm. set. Mm -hmm. I deferred. And uh, you don't see dailies in the old days of film. You've got to beat your own location. You send the film to the, lab to the laboratory. They develop it. It goes to the editing room. They sync it up. And you see your dailies the, se the second night. Right. So you're going to shoot the first day and the second day without seeing what you shot. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the second day, I go to dailies. I'm looking, and I'm looking at this stuff, and I'm going, I don't like that. That's not very good. In fact, that sucks. And I realized that right there, and uh, the next day I called the crew together, 
And I said, listen, the people who financed this movie, United Artists, may have made a big mistake by hiring me, but they hired me, okay? And I can't sit in the lobby of a movie theater where my film is showing when people walk out saying, hey, hey, you have to understand that wasn't my idea. That was the AD's no, idea. That was right. the cinematographer's no. idea. Nope. I said, that's not going to work. So at this point, I am going to make the decisions. Now, they may not be the best decisions. You may not agree with them, but I'm the director, and I'll be goddamned when I'm going to get my image on the screen. And they all went, okay, fine, walked away. I mean, that's what they were waiting for, right? Right, someone but, to take control. Yeah, yeah, but that's what being a director is, making decisions, making your own mm-hmm. decisions, mm-hmm. having a vision. I was just going to use and that And you word. live with that. And so what I'm saying, you, to get back to your question, am I as passionate now as I was then? Yeah. More so. Because I have projects that are mine. Yep. You know, that wasn't my, I mean, I did a couple of drafts of the script, but it was a project brought to me. Now I've got the ones that I want to make. And, you know, the, you also, having been in the business, as Alan said, for many years, mm-hmm. you realize that a lot of great films that I could have made, I didn't make because, you know, people didn't have the confidence or they mm-hmm. cost too much or they didn't have the right star or whatever. You know, those are the the bodies lying on the side of the road. The films that I've made will live, and they'll live long beyond, you know, by, by me, yep. and they'll be seen. And that's one of the great things about making feature films. Mm-hmm. They they have a life, yeah. an yeah. afterlife. Yeah. But for the films that didn't get made, unfortunately, nobody's going to know they could have been as good as the ones I made. Yeah, yeah or better. Yeah. Now I just want to clarify. I said many years. I didn't say too many years. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a second part to the question, so I just want to throw that. With young actors, uh, how important is it for you? I, I know it was very important for my father. used to drive him crazy when, uh, when he would reference uh, a film, you know, to try and get something out of the actor or out of the scene or reference an actor like a Rod Steiger or, or you know, somebody uh, from the past, and the, uh, and the actor would be like, who? So unprepared. Is that, is th- that is important to know your history, to know who the pioneers were in the business, or, or films and plays and references. Well, Reading is important and all of those things, isn't it? Still? Uh, I, I, th- I think it's important, but I'm afraid that um, it's gone. that's a lost cause. Yeah, that's um, what I thought you'd you know, say. I, I, I made a film. <laughs> it is. I made a film a few years ago called When We Were Kings about um, mm-hmm. um, Muhammad Ali going to Zaire to sure. play George Foreman. And the, the, the original uh, filmmaker had gone and shot a concert there. I was interested in the fight because I, I, I went to Los Angeles to the sports arena, saw it closed circuit, and it was one of the kind of defining moments of the fight game. But I had Spike Lee, who I knew, uh, come on because uh, they had gone to Africa. They never, had, you know, they never talked to one black person. Um, I'm, 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 I was focused on the fact that these were two black men of stature, and Ali was really the the, the movie star of my generation. Right. There was no movie star that compared to the electricity, the power of Muhammad Ali. But when I was interviewing Spike, he said, you know, history is just a lost, it's a lost thing. Nobody knows who Malcolm X is. Nobody knows who John Kennedy is. He said, Muhammad Ali, uh, already when I was making the film, most most black kids would not know who he was. Now, you know, there'll be a lot of political black people out there saying, wait a minute, we know, of course. No, no. Young teenagers. But history is gone. It's white. Oh, it's, it's everyone. everyone. Oh, it's, everyone. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like the kid that wants to be a priest. He had a calling and he went to the seminary and the minute they they mentioned Jesus Christ, he's like, well, that was before my time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. You can't say St. Well, Francis is, <laughs> yeah. I never heard of him. Never, never heard of him. <laughs> I mean, bo- bottom line is that 
process of, of having a basis. Now, you know, in, in music, I think a lot of young people, if they're really into music, they're into the music of the day, and then if they're really into it, they start going back and sampling out of the past. And when they sample the Beatles, or they sample the Stones, or they go into the 40s and, 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 and look at Lowell Folsom, I'm getting, you know, esoteric here, they'll do it. But that's almost when they're in their 20s. They've yeah, already, already passed. They, they've, yeah. they've come to the point where music is really important to them. Same thing in cinema. You know, people come up and they know what is that what is streaming this week. Right. Uh, who may they may have seen uh, one or two movies during the year because unfortunately people aren't going to feature films. And the whole idea of of the star quotient. Pardon me, but. You know, what is this business without stars? Mm-hmm. They ain't going to be stars from streaming. They just no, won't be. No, right. You know, it's... They're the, the as quick as the mentality, as the attention span. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone is, everyone today is like saying, oh, you know, it's really going to be on, on, on the, the streaming circuit. Well, is there a business without movie stars? Mm-hmm. Is there a business without famous directors who have a vision, who right. can, you know, st- could give you a picture on the screen that changes your life. Uh, you know, it's a writer's medium, and maybe, but even the people who write for the streamers, they're, you know, nobody, they're the David Milches of the world. Oh, God. You know, there, there's no David Milch in the nope. streamers. You know, he may get the gig, and he may, but he doesn't become famous. And therefore, uh, the John Fords, you know, the Howard Hawks, the, the Frank Capras, mm-hmm. you know, the John Houston's, mm-hmm. which you are a storyteller. Well, that's what I aspired to be. But well, the you fact are. is, well, any real director has to be a storyteller. Well, there's some shitty storytellers. Yeah, yeah too. no, I know. Well, but but, but <laughs> the unfortunate thing is, I don't think that is going to be fostered. That culture, that brilliance of art, is not going to be. Fo- you know, the Marlon Brandos aren't going to be fostered in uh, streamers. They just, you know, it's it's product. And of course, the way the Netflix looks at it. See, I come from a well, business. They, well, I'm sorry. In, in an interesting way, they're looking for you to bring them the star. So that star has to be created somewhere else because Netflix right. wants that star. That's what's made them. That's what they've sold so far. Yeah. But unfortunately, it, it you can't do it on a streamer. I really don't believe this. So you know, the reality is they they start their businesses by putting those quote movie stars in. Yeah. And that's great, but those movie stars are from three or four generations before. Right. And I think that is, uh, you know, that's needed. I, I I still hold out a little hope, pardon me for being, uh, you know, uh, positive in the middle of all this negativity. Yeah. But um, I, I still believe that there is an experience to be had in a movie theater when a commonality of, God, of emotion. I, yeah. You're yeah. working at something on the screen, you feel it. Listen, you laugh harder in a movie theater, then you will ever laugh at in home your, yeah. at the same joke. I don't care how great the comedian is. And you are also going to be shocked by something that happens because it, on the screen that is shocking because everyone next to you is jumped and you're jumping. You, you accentuate the reaction by having a, a common experience in yeah. a movie theater, which you're just not going to have at home. Why do you think you can see a film 20, 30 times in your lifetime and still have the same reaction? It never gets old. You still cry at the same thing. You still cheer yeah. for the, at the same places. You still take it home with you, and you want to share it with someone, someone else. else. Yeah, to his point, when Will and I, you know, when you see all those trailers before the films, we're like, 
Oh, that's a theater. Oh, that's home. That's a theater. Yeah. <laughs> or sure. who? Sure. Yeah. Who? <laughs> yeah. I so find I, myself doing that all the time. But you know what I find to this to the your conversation about not knowing your you know if you're going into a business before I even knew I wanted to somehow be involved in film and TV I watched movies with my parents I knew who Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were of course. they weren't my generation then when I was working at a large management company I did Lauren Bacall's book and you know so she was calling all the time and my assistant turned to me one day and she said but who's Lauren Bacall? <laughs> Course. And she wanted to be in the film business. Yeah. She was, you know, 22 yeah. and knew she wanted to be in the film business. And this was, you know, 20 years ago. And I said, well, you know who Humphrey Bogart is, right? She said, no. And I said, you don't know who Bogart and, and Bacall are? No. And, and you want to be an actor. And I said, yeah. and you, no, she wanted to be a producer. Oh. And right. I said, how, how can you, did you not watch any movies growing up? How, how can you be passionate about movies and not have watched some of the greatest movies ever made? But she's watched the movies that are out and available to her now in a contemporary setting. Mm -hmm. And I think most young people do. That's, uh, they may have a desire to go to the movies. That's why it is. Again, the aficionados, if they become aficionados, yeah. will then go back and I'm, fill yeah. in their experience, fill in their knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, fill in the history. I don't want us to sound like dinosaurs here because no, the fact is that, that, that there are... Well, and there are a lot of people who do. Oh, and there's a lot more movies study. about dinosaurs these days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Spielberg jumped right he on sure that He sure did. Yeah. <laughs> he thought, I won't be a dinosaur. I'll just make one. <laughs> I'll just, yeah, exactly. I'll create one. So, rumor has it you're working on a book. Yes. I'm, uh, I, I, you know, it, it had to be suggested to me by a friend of mine. Uh, and then uh, you know, you and I talked, but the the reality is, uh, one never thinks you have particularly interesting things in your life. But you know, I'm a storyteller, mm -hmm. and uh, if my films have lived on, it's because I know how to tell a story. Right. And I think that the process—that's the thing that's interesting. I don't think anyone um, that sees a movie should know uh, the story about how it was made. I think they should see it. If you're telling your story correctly, the actors are right, all the crew have put together something, they can be entertained. They're following that story. But the behind the scenes of most movies, but certainly some that I've been involved in, are absolutely fascinating. And and I was at the center of the... <laughs> I was in the hot seat, as it were, yeah. you know, while these things were being made. And uh, I know how to tell the story that can, can allow the layman to realize, oh, my God. Because you think of the movie business being glamorous. Oh, it's glamorous, all those <laughs> premieres. Uh -uh. It's yeah. not what it's like when you go every day, you get up at 5 in the morning, you oh, go to sure. the set, yeah, and people glamorous. don't want to work or there's problems, and, and, and you have to solve those problems. I think that, frankly, I've told those stories a fair amount of time, and I find people very engaged. So I said, what the hell? I'll put it in a book, and we'll see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> By the way, the perfect example is did you watch The Offer? The making of I haven't yet so that is as fascinating as the movie itself watching how that movie came together and all the problems they had uh, for the oh, making I know of the that Godfather story. yeah yeah I, I know that Sewing story it because all together yeah. yeah I know Francis and Francis has told me a lot and then then when uh, it, it was like three or four years ago they put a, a special program at the at the um, at the Tribeca Film Festival and they filled filled Radio City with 3,700 people and uh, they showed Godfather 1 and 2, and then all the original stars appeared on stage, and I was the moderator. 
you know, De Niro's invited me to be there. So I had Francis, I had De Niro, Pacino, uh, you know, Talia Shire, Uh uh, Diane Keaton, Duvall, Jimmy Kahn, who we, you know, we've just lost. Just lost him. And uh, they were all on stage, and of course they all had, they were ready to give. I'll tell you a fascinating thing. They were ready to give because, I mean, you know, here we are. This is a historic. And you didn't have to fight them. You wanted them to give the, the, the goods. They had it. So I thought, oh, and I really researched it. I'm ready to go. So I'm, I'm there, and um, about an hour in, I mean, it's only an hour. Yeah. And by the way, these people had been there for seven hours looking at two very long films. Right. Do you think one, of, one person left the movie theater? Not one. Not one. They were ready. They had the real stories, the real goods right there. So about an hour in, I get a note handed to me, and it said, wrap it up. And I'm going, wrap it up? I'm going to be here for two more hours. I mean, <laughs> come on. This is history. This is an opportunity to debrief, debrief the people who, who really lived it. And I forgot it and went on. And I got another thing came back, and it was the stage crew. And the stage crew says, you either wrap this up or we're going to douse the lights and, and, and force you to. And I went, in my mind, I went, fuck you. <laughs> and I went on, and then they, they blipped the lights. And I thought, oh, shit. So I had to, I, I mean, it was about an hour and 45 minutes. Could have easily, easily been three hours. And when I say three hours, it wasn't three hours of boring yeah, stuff. It was, right, it was right. people people giving their, yeah. their real inside uh, observations of what it was like making that great movie. I was never so pissed in my life. And Francis went... Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. Well, here's <laughs> another example. My dad and Al Pacino were pals mm. way back. Mm. So they had done a film together called Panic in Needle Park. Right. And Jerry Schatzberg. Yes, exactly. And so the film did quite well. And then Al was, was up. For, he was getting offered uh, The Godfather. But he also committed to another film with my father they were doing called The, the Gang, Gang That Couldn't Shoot, shoot Straight yeah. with Joe Van Fleet and yeah, a wonderful sure. cast. So my dad said, if you don't take that movie, you're a horse's ass. You've got to find a way out of this, and you gotta, you, that's, that's going to be your, your ticket. And he took the advice. He did the film. They put Robert De Niro in. Yeah. In pa- but you in, realize uh, that, that MGM, you know, uh, Jim Aubrey, who was the head of MGM at the time, would not have let him out. No. Um, but what happened But was, he was afraid. That was well, the conversation. This is, this is what happened. This is what happened. Cause, because uh, Paramount... Uh, kept looking for someone else. They wouldn't let Al in. Mm-hmm. Francis wanted him. Um, Jim Aubrey was a guy who had been head of CBS. They called him the Smiling Cobra. Uh, <laughs> he was a he was a, a mean motherfucker, let me tell you. Uh-huh. And he was not going to let Pacino go. So you know what happened? Robert Evans called Sidney Korshak. Now, people might not know who Sidney Korshak was, but Sidney Korshak was the mob's lawyer in Hollywood. He lived in the Beverly Wilshire, ah. and he was a guy who literally uh, was Lou Wasserman's best friend. Yep. I mean, he was he represented the Cleveland and the Chicago mob mm-hmm. here. And Korshak called Jim Aubrey and said, you will arrange this. It will happen. And they made some sort of deal. And uh, Jim Aubrey, believe me, got something for it. But oh, yeah. this is Hollywood. Now, here you're saying, oh, Al Pacino it defined his career. He, Al Pacino, what Francis wanted him, but Francis was not going to get him. And it was too late. He'd gone to MGM. Now, this is stuff I know because I've researched it. Sure. I, know, I know Al. I know uh, Francis. 
but I also know the background there. And people, you know, the thing that's interesting about Hollywood, there are people like Sidney Korshak who were really quiet, who were here, who actually had huge amount to say about what went on in this town. And that's called the the dark heart of Hollywood. Uh (laughs) But it kept it running, didn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And it turned out some good product. It sure did. Yeah. Great storyteller. Where do you think that came from, that storytelling? Was it a born thing? Is it something that you, your mother used to tell you stories and you picked up? Where, where do you think it came from? I was raised in Santa Barbara. And my mother was by my mother alone. Uh, she was a waitress. Um, so I had a lot of time on my own. And, uh, you know, I, the only thing she wanted me to do was get good grades. And I could kind of handle that. But, you know, there was a, uh, in the middle of the afternoon, Channel 9 had the Million Dollar Movie, you know. Oh, that's the gosh, first, yeah. That's a, you W-O-R. Know, yeah, mm. first time I ever saw Citizen Kane, oh. which I saw about seven times. You know, I think that um, reading, I think, I, I don't know why, I, you know, maybe I'm just a good bullshitter. You know, <laughs> I like, you know, having a drink and talking to people, but I think I get excited by good stories. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's a good story, I can smell it. Yeah. And uh, therefore, when I'm out there and I sense that there's something that's compelling, I I want to, and that's why I was a good journalist. I asked questions. I asked questions over and over and over again uh, because I'm genuinely interested. And then the stuff that I get, I don't forget. People sometimes they're in the conversation and you say, well, what did they say? I can't remember. That was last night. You're going, come on. You missed this opportunity. You were sitting with Marlon fucking Brando, yeah. and you and, a, you and you asked him questions you can't remember. Right, that's you know, weird. <laughs> this is that it is weird, but there are people that are like that. They don't. I, I take it in. It sticks like glue, mm-hmm. and then I'm able to communicate it. Of course, there's some. Let's call it. What do we want to call it? Dramatic license, editorializing. I mean, because someone tells you things, and then you of course embellish that a bit to make this story better. Now, I don't tell all out lies. I wouldn't do that. I fill in spaces <laughs> because I can make this story better, and it just came, you know, it came naturally. It just did. You know, I'll tell you a, a, a really interesting aside. Uh, you know who Keeley Smith was? Of course. Yeah. With, uh, she was married to uh, Cooper. Uh, Cooper. What was that? Uh, she was married to Louis Prima. Louis Prima. Yeah. So the fact is that I Hello, did Black a, Magic has That's right. The best. Yeah. Uh, I did a play. Um, it started at the Geffen, and we took it to Chicago, and I think I could have gone to Broadway if I hadn't been sued by some disgruntled uh, uh, investor. But I knew Keeley. She was a friend. And Keeley Smith was married to one of the great Sicilians mm-hmm. of this country. Louis Prima was an incredibly talented guy. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the, one of the most talented guys there is, and he was very well known. And Louis and Keeley, by the way, you know, just so you know, Sonny and Cher, that some people may know, <laughs> modeled their their act completely after Often Louis that. and Keeley, completely copied it. And Ahmed Erdogan, who was the head of Atlantic, told him to do it. Go to Vegas, see Louis and Keeley, and that's what you should do. And that's Sonny Bono was smart. He did it, and that was that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was having drinks with Keeley. And, of course, Louis, unfortunately, um, had had a great thing going, and she loved him dearly, and they had a couple of kids. But she became more popular than he did, and he couldn't it's take it. a great voice. Yeah. He, he, she was a brilliant singer. Yeah. He, he couldn't take it, and he blew up the marriage. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Sinatra, who was there, um, took up with her 
as Sinatra took up with everybody. Yeah. All right, <laughs> you know that's just the, that's just a fact of life. Yeah. So I'm you know I'm, I'm telling you about the kind of storyteller I am, and I ask you the questions. So I say, I'm just meeting Keely for the first time, but I just sensed I liked her, and she. I said, so Keely, tell me something. You have slept with the two <laughs> most famous Sicilians in this country. Do you want to make a comparison? <laughs> she says to me, well, she said, Frank was a wonderful lover, and he uh, was very kind. and he'd l- We'd lie afterwards, and he'd talk to me for long, long periods of time. But he was no Louis Primo. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. Now, without that... Ability to ask, you know, some people are terrified. Why would you ask? Oh, that's so intimate. Uh-huh. How would you? I don't know. I knew her from just sitting at a table with her. I sensed her. I could psych her out in the sense that this was no, uh, you know, Lily. You know, yeah, yeah. L- you know, Keely was a great singer. She had uh, done incredible things and and been with incredible people. And I figured she could take it. If she couldn't, she'd slap my face. Right. Well, she didn't, and she told me the truth. But that's that's what you get as a storyteller. You uh-huh. you you have to keep pursuing the story. Um, let me go back a second because you talked about when you wanted to be a director. What age was that that you knew you wanted to direct? I didn't really realize I wanted to be a director until I was in university. Uh-huh. Now I loved movies as most people do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in junior high. It was junior high school. A movie came out called One-Eyed Jacks. Okay. Oh, Marlon yeah. Brando yeah. starring and directing. The only film he ever directed. I went back to see that movie three times. It was fun. It was a spaghetti western before spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that Sergio Leone saw Marlon Brando's movie. But later when I um, you know, got married and had my first child, I named him Rio after Marlon Brando's character in One-Eyed Jacks, the mm-hmm. Rio kid. There was this wonderful, you know, Latina, young Latina that would go, Rio, I love you, Rio, <laughs> Rio. And I thought, wow, what a great name. Yeah, you know, it is. So I, I'm affected by movies. I took it seriously. I think everybody does. But unlike Marty or p- people that were you know, had asthma and were, were uh, uh, you know, sickly, so they went into movie theater every day, I saw movies, I enjoyed them, I read books, I did... I played sports. I did a lot of things that I thought were compelling. I was in student politics. In I was a student by president of my high school. I was a student by president of my university, USC. So I was into a lot of, and I went to the Peace Corps after college. Wow. So I was always interested in, in society. Happened? I didn't think about being a director until my senior year in college, where I started looking at film. I took a survey class. I didn't go to film school. I took a survey class. A film, and I started to see movies and going, whoa, this is great. And documentaries, which is the reality of my life. You know, documentaries talk about what real life is and what politics are, and that's right. what I was interested in. And then I went in the Peace Corps, and I started thinking about it differently. I'd been accepted to law school, and so I thought, oh well, you know, that's that's what I'm going to do when I come back. I started. I bought a Super 8 camera. I started shooting. You know, these are things that you do, uh, not because you are really thinking this is real. You're just saying, I have an interest, it's a hobby, I'm going to see if I can do it. And then I started to just catch the bug. Mm-hmm. So when You're I came... drawn to it automatically. Yeah, I came back from the Peace Corps. I went to law school for two weeks. 
I went there and I went. I said, no, this is not what I want to do. But I mean, there's also a sense of, of voyeur, uh, voyeurism too. Yeah, well, getting, of I course. mean, seeing people's lives and yeah. reactions. And it's it is, but it, that that process of, of I lost my tuition. I mm-hmm. you know I, I I basically went in and said no. I know this is what I said I was going to do. I know this is what my mother would like me to do. I know these are the kinds of n- norms that are expected of me, but I don't want to do it, and I'm not going to do it. And I got up and walked out and wow. got a job in the mailroom of a public television station. It yeah. worked out okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it worked out real well. <laughs> I, we always tell everybody, young people, we talk, I say, go with your heart because you can always find, you'll find a way to make money from it. Go with right. what you love yeah. because yeah. you'll do it 24 hours a day because yeah. you love it. But, now, many people may not know, but you are married to be absolutely adorable Helen Mirren, or I should say Dame Helen Mirren. Um, she, of course, won the Academy Award for Best Actress in 2007 for her portrayal of the Queen in The Queen. And Joey and I were talking about this. Did she ever meet the Queen? Yes. Well, you know what? Don't, don't ask him those questions. She's in the car, isn't she? Just have her come down. And <laughs> she's, she's in Montana. And tell her she doesn't have to wait. She'll, she'll answer she herself. In. She's in Montana with Harrison Ford shooting a, a st- one of those streaming oh, terrific. things. Oh, yeah. terrific. Oh, great. One no, of those streaming but, things. But, you know, I, I like, I'm, I'm going to tell her that you uh, you described her as adorable. She loved that. <laughs> she's I, also she's rather, rather she talented also and serious and all the other yeah, things. Yeah, but she's, she's a talented actress, but, but, but why I think people love her. She's adorable. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And everything I see Even her in, in her rough role. She's endearing in every quality. Yeah, she's human. You know? Yeah. She's, uh, I mean, the, uh, she did the queen. I don't know if the queen really knew it. But, the, uh, you know, I've met the Queen. I, I had a royal premiere in London, and I met the Queen, and it, and it was it was very nice and polite and so on. It was like meeting a slab. A glass of, wall. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was just... And, and, you know, having Helen play you, it's impossible for Helen not to humanize any character she plays. Mm. And, uh, you know, you remember that the Queen had been through a rather harrowing, difficult time with Diana and so forth. Yeah. But Helen playing her, I have this theory that... All of a sudden, everybody saw the movie and went, oh, she's really a human being. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's really, yeah. oh, I get it. Uh, and, and you know, like I said, she, she, my wife has that talent mm-hmm. um, because she is herself a pretty warm human being. Yeah. But she tends to absorb whoever she's playing. It comes out through her instrument, but she's rubbed some of herself off on it. Mm-hmm. Are you going to talk about her in your book? Of course. Of course. Good and I mean, bad. Uh, Anything uh, you want to share? Uh, n- no, I mean, I, I, listen. This is a uh, this is a person. I, I was married twice before. Okay. And uh, I had two two child two two Children. boys, one from each marriage. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud of the fact that those marriages didn't work. It's it's always one of those things. But I definitely have found the person for me. Yeah. I mean, we've been together now 38 years. Wow. And I'm never going to be looking again. Yeah. She doesn't uh, want to have a child. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to have a third. No, child. I. Th- you know, she she made a big point of in her career saying, I'm going to have my career, I'm not going to. But she was really smart. Uh, when when, when uh, we got together, I again, I had two sons, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to leave their life. I, I said, I'm going to be in California. You're going If we're going to be together, you're going to come back. And she did. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she met them, she was very smart. She said to them, listen, I'm not your mother. You only have one mother. I don't want to be your mother. I want to be your friend. 
and your father's a difficult guy. So I will always, I will always Younger take side. your side against him. And they were feeling? best friends after and, and, that. I mean, you can't believe both of those guys loved her yeah. because that's you know she was smart enough to do it because yeah. you're never going to take the place of a, of someone's yeah. mother. Right. And they never of felt course. the threat. And they never felt the threat. And she was absolutely there. And every time I got, you know, pissed off, you know, with them, she'd like take their side. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway, funny. it's it, she's she's uh, she's a great partner. She's yeah. a great partner. She's also an incredible artist. I mean, I think yeah. the best the best of the best in terms of acting, mm-hmm. and I love actors. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll I'll talk about her. Well, and that's, and well, now you've you opened that door. Do you think actors have changed since you started making films? Mm, Are they a different breed now? I don't think so. Okay. I, I don't. I mean. You know, the training of actors, if there was training, um, may have changed. I think that, that, that one of the problems is in the past, um, you know, the stage was the first kind Correct. of training ground. Helen's for sure. Yeah. You know, Brando's for sure. Mm-hmm. That's, they, they were trained on the stage. Then they came to Hollywood. Then they worked in film. There's you go a, back and hone that. There's a, a real different, actor does that. It, it, but there's a difference. Completely. Technique completely different technique yeah. on the stage you project with your your voice. diaphragm and your yeah. voice and big movements on film you you have to communicate through your eyes mm-hmm. and very very you don't project you you hold it in right um, but you know people that are talented learn that no I think that that process of learning on stage is gone unfortunately today people they want to be an actor. What do they want to be? They'll, I want to be an actor, which is, I want to be a star in that I want to be a series. celebrity. I want to be yeah. a celebrity. God. And you go, wait a minute, but you've got to train. It isn't just, yeah. most people didn't get there just by, uh, you know, being... Showing up. Hitting showing up. Walked off the street and, and you want to be in a movie. Having right. a big, uh, you know, uh, internet... Uh, yeah, I've got following. two million followers. followers. You know, that's not talent. No. I mean, it is talent. It's cunning. It's talent in a way to be able to seduce through PR. But you'll be uh, forgotten after. Uh, yeah, well, that's, but that's not the talent we're talking about. Right, right. We're talking about people who can go in. But I think the people who are serious are still the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, no, I agree. they're smart. They learn. You know, you see a, a young actor who comes on the scene. And, you know, when, when Leo DiCaprio, I don't think he did a lot of, he didn't do a lot of, um, uh, Theater, I think, growing up. Maybe he did a little bit in, in Los Angeles. But yeah. when you saw Gilbert Grape, I mean, my God, mm-hmm. that guy is a retarded kid. And when I found out he wasn't, I'm going, that's an actor? And then you <laughs> find out it's Louis, Le- Leo DiCaprio? No, those guys, when they come about, or yeah. those women, when they come about, uh, you know, Kate, Kate Winslet. Yeah, you know, terrific did she, actress. Did she come from the stage? I don't know. Maybe she did. But, you know, has she ever given a bad performance? I don't think so. I've not seen it. So you, 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 and those are, those are, you know, we're, I'm mentioning people who are still two generations ago. Right. right. right? But, you know, interestingly, too, uh, many actors from the stage don't make that transfer to film for exactly the reasons we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, uh, it's really just uh, to me. It's the storytelling. It's yeah. the ability to um, be compelling in in the storytelling, which gives actors uh, uh, roles to be compelling in, yeah. and uh, and and hopefully directors to be able to elicit that process. You know, writers. You know, they they're in a great position. They were. You know, it used to be uh, feature films are a director's medium. 
I don't care who wrote it. Maybe Patty Chayefsky occasionally. But the fact is, it's a director's medium because you interpret it and you have a vision. In television, it was always a writer's medium because if you're writing a series and, and they, they need somebody with a certain continuity of vision, and now with streamers, you know, it's th- that's television. Yeah, yeah, and, that is yeah, television. And so writers are still in really you know strong position. I come from a business where uh, you make a feature film, uh, it's released, people vote with their dollars, and if the film works, they go out and buy a lot of tickets. Right. And everybody goes, that piece of shit? Rocky? <laughs> right. Rocky? What's yeah, Rocky? Right. How right. come many, many people are done. going? Well, you know, guess what? There was some vision in Rocky. The writer yeah. was the star. Mm-hmm. And, and, and John Avelson, you know, directed an incredible sure. movie. And, and Chartoff and Winkler, uh, you know, produced it. That somebody believed in it. And it, against all odds, went out and was very successful. Right. That is a, a process and a business model that is ruthless. It's tough, but it's, it is based on something. Yeah. And that's what made movie stars. That's what made star directors. That's what created great movies. The streamers don't do that. No. They never tell you how many people watch. They don't want you to know how many watch. They, they don't, they're not looking for single hits. They, they want you to pay at the end of the month and a fee. Away. And what they're doing is 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 taking mediocrity, and 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 pushing it forward. Oh sure. Because they're interested in the amount of product they can put on, mm-hmm. so that people at the end of each month says, well, uh, do I want to pay fifteen dollars again to sign up for Netflix? Um, well, they've got all these new shows. Maybe I will. Yeah. Maybe I'll the, watch one of them. How yeah. good the shows are. Well, let me ask right. you, but don't you think with this competition between the streamers that the product is better than it ever was for television? Mm, don't yeah. you think some of the storytelling and some of the, obviously, the production values and things have gotten way better than they well, were? Well, I think I think that uh, it's robbed from the movies. I mean, you know, Game of Thrones is, is you know, spent a huge, huge amount of money yeah. on special effects. Very well, uh, the stories were fantastic, involved you. Uh, and there are things you can do there that you couldn't do in feature films. Except for the Starbucks cup. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> that, but that, that made the frame. But yeah. the, yes, I'm not saying I am, <laughs> by the way. And I, a wristwatch. I, I'm getting off my soapbox here. <laughs> there certainly are pr- uh, projects on streamers that are really good, yeah. that are compelling. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no question about it. But are those projects that are we're talking about, let's talk about them in the percentage of right, films well that are, are on Netflix. Projects yeah, you've got, you a, you got, you got about, you know, three or four s- series that we can talk about. Netflix has been on forever, and they make so much dreck. Well, let me ask you something. You mentioned in an article th- that I read that you like telling stories of working-class people. And, of course... You know, a well-known film that you did, an officer and a gentleman, which I watched last night again, and did I you? thought I thought Couple it was. Days ago from I, yeah, I loved it again. Yeah. You know, I, it stands up, it stands the test of time. You know, watching those two, and it is a very working-class environment. And you're rooting. Yeah, you're the rooting for scene? them. Yeah. And how do you not get out of your yeah. chair? Yeah. But but what is it? Why are you why are you attracted to the working class? And because I'm one of them. You know, my mother, I was raised alone by my mother, who was a waitress. Mm-hmm. That's just uh, the truth. And, right. Uh, the, one of the reasons that <laughs> I um, end up by, I've, I've made several uh, films that have to do with ethnicity, you know, La Bamba and Blood mm-hmm. In, Blood Out, Chicanos, uh, Chuck Berry, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, Ray, 
um, of, you know, black communities, because I grew up with in my neighborhood, the yeah. people that I, of course, it's Santa Barbara. But, you know, you play sports, you're you're very much involved in. So uh, there were in Chicanos in $15 million homes? There were no. Where I lived, uh, which was the other side of the tracks, there were no $15 million homes. I was from downtown. Right. And and it's different. And, you know, whatever our perception is of Santa Barbara, and you're right, Montecito, yeah, you know, where Oprah lives. The fact is they're very, very rich out there. But uh, the, the reality is I was working class, and that is what interests me. I think uh-huh. you should you should – you should work and talk about things and, and in your in your art, uh, communicate things you know about. Uh, and where did Officer and Gentleman come from? How did that? How did Officer that? and Gentleman was a script that existed. Uh, Douglas Day Stewart wrote it. Don Simpson at Paramount wanted to make it. Uh, nobody else at Paramount wanted to make it. Um, and uh, you know Michael Eisner, who ran the company, said, "Why make that film?" Uh, and he offered me another film, White Dog, that I decided not to make, and he gave me shit about making the choice to do that, oh, that romantic. But I, I did Officer and Gentleman because, uh, and I was in the Peace Corps. I didn't go in the military. Right. But it's a working class situation. You know, who goes in the, in the military? And and in this instance, you know, Richard Gere is playing a guy who's the son of a chief petty officer who lived in Subic Bay in the Philippines. And I thought, you know, the whole idea about an officer, I talked to a couple of people who were, who were in the service, and they said, listen, you have an officer that's going to send you into battle. He's got you, his, your life in his hands. Uh, he better be a responsible guy. He better be good, because if he's not, it, it, you know, you're you're definitely dead. And I thought that's an interesting, you know, concept. And that's what I made the film about. And uh, in you know, you talk about young actors. We were talking about all those actors were young and just starting out. Mm-hmm. You know, so in that, you know, you got Richard Gere, you got Deborah, Deborah Winger. Winger, Lou Gossett mm-hmm. was a theater actor who hadn't done a lot of great stuff. He won the Academy Award for that film yep. yeah. uh, as Best Supporting Actor, the first black. You know, Sidney Poitier had won uh, an Academy Award, but that was for Best Actor. I, I've made, you know, two films that have won Academy Awards for black actors. Lou Gossett for Best Supporting and Jamie Foxx for Best Actor. In Ray. For Ray. For Ray, yeah. But my point is uh, the concept of working class drama is exciting to me and interesting mm-hmm. and I think compelling because I think a lot of people will, will be able to identify with it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right. Yeah, they don't identify with someone with $20 million other than a dream. Right. It's a dream, but they don't identify with that person. Streamers do. so let's move into ray because what an amazing film uh i I mean i don't know anybody that didn't like ray i never Mm. came across somebody who said they didn't like the film and uh you know it got a lot of attention jamie fox was amazing in it and so how did that all come together now you wrote ray yeah i i wrote the i wrote the treatment to ray you wrote the treatment okay um the the thing that's interesting is that i am a big big, big music fan. I mean, mm-hmm. music. I've scored my life to music. You growing up, you know, you listen to music, and I was a child of rock and roll and of the blues. You know, growing up, that's, that's what interested sure. me. And uh, in addition to cinema, but, but music is more immediate. Yeah. And From Ray the Charles, morning I get up yeah. all day long. Ray Charles is my guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, you put Ray Charles on, I never heard a record that, that I would turn away from. He mm-hmm. was just brilliant. And later when I had a success, you know, I made La Bamba, which was a music film. Uh, the Idol Maker is about music. Yep. I mean, I, I had a company, and uh, somebody said that I could meet Ray Charles and try to get his rights. And some guys came in, and I went, and I did. Now, 
it's fascinating when you meet somebody who is that well known. I mean, Ray Charles is part of our culture. I mean, in addition to all the work that he did as an artist, he's on Sesame Street every night, every week. So, <laughs> so you have all the kids being indoctrinated into the fact that here's this black man who's incredibly entertaining and, and great. I go to see Ray Charles. I'm going to meet him alone. His son set the meeting up, R- Ray Jr. Uh, I, I'm ushered into an office. Now, there are no windows at all. He's the, you know, he's the man. This is the Ray Charles building. It's his thing. Executive office. This, this is the top of the line. No windows. He of course, need the view. why would he need the windows yeah. he can't see? <laughs> right. And, but it's filled, filled with furniture. Just chock-a-block of furniture all around the room. You know, and no lights on in the room. One lamp that's a small lamp that's on. And I could kind of, uh, you know, find my way there. Ray Jr. left me. And uh, at the door, Ray came in, and Ray Jr. said, Taylor's in there. So Ray walks from the door, and I watch him evade about six, seven, eight obstacles, a couch, a coffee table. A thi- I mean, I'm going, and he walks up to me, sticks out his hand, and, Taylor, I'm Ray Charles. And I go, hi, Ray, nice to meet you. And as he's, now he walks around in about seven other obstacles to get behind his desk. And the first thing out of his mouth is, did you see the Dodgers last night? Could you believe that game? Could you see the Dodgers, right? right? right. And I'm going to myself, this is the biggest hoax that's ever been perpetrated <laughs> on show business. You know, this guy can see. I mean, <laughs> he may, he may uh, not have perfect vision. It may be just shapes. But there's no way that that guy could maneuver what I just saw him maneuver and not see. Right. Well, guess what? Ray Charles had both his eyes taken out when he was 13. I mean, this is a guy who is not only incredibly skilled and artistically brilliant, but but also an incredibly smart guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized that, you know, he... He had word. He wore heavy-soled shoes. So when he walked, he could his he saw with his ears. He could hear the echo of his shoes on the floor, and they'd bounce up against things that he'd know. I mean, plus it was his office. He probably had it memorized. Right. Yeah. But regardless, I'm uh, right at that moment. I went, Oh my God, this guy is ten times what I thought of him. Yeah. And uh, I made the film. It took me. This is the thing about people have to understand about a director. I met Ray Charles. I got the rights. Uh, I didn't make the film. It wasn't finished until 15 years later, uh, 13 wow. years before I started it. You know, you have to have a passion. you got to believe in it. And the great thing for me is that I got to know Ray Charles. He was one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. But I had all that time to get to know him, and he got to know me. So every year I would have to go back and say, Ray, uh, you gave me the rights. I'm sorry. Uh, nobody will buy the film. And, and I, he could have taken the rights away from me at any time. Other people were trying to get it. He said, Taylor, things happen when they're meant to happen. And he was right. Because if I'd made it back then, I wouldn't have had Jamie Foxx. Right. Jamie yeah. Foxx came in and, and, and completely you know, killed it. Yeah. He yeah. won the Academy Award. Yeah. He was brilliant. And he was, he's a, a brilliant guy and, and, and so forth. But I wouldn't have had it then. And I'll also, I think by that time, uh, all that time with Ray, I was ready to make it. I said to Jamie, because Jamie and I are close, and we still are close, but I said, man, we're, we're in the deep shit. Uh, you know, you live in the black community. You can't spend the rest of your life having your uncles and your cousins say, so, Jamie, I guess you just couldn't do it. Uh, and, or I can't look at every black friend I have and have them say, how dare you? You know, you, you did this, because he is this icon. 
Right. So Jamie and I kind of made this bond throughout the film. We helped each other through it. And and in reality, uh, we knew <laughs> that we had to get this thing done right because mm-hmm. we, had to be, be, we had to be real and fair and, and righteous mm-hmm. for Ray. Yeah. Was it yeah, Jamie's well. attachment to put the film into production or no. was it something else? No, I mean, for you go for that long a time. I went to every studio I met over and over. And people would say, oh, yeah, Ray Charles was kind of talented, but he's old now. Nobody really oh, knows I who he that. is. And when, oh, and then there's another, there was another line. You know, black films don't sell for it. And I'm going, wait a um, minute, Ray Charles toured the world for 30 years. Yeah. Every place, South America, Asia, the Middle yeah, East, Russia, right. Eastern Europe. All those people came out for him. You don't tell me that. They said, sorry, they don't work. Now, that film proved them all wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, they, 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 they underestimated what music does. His, they, they may not know and, 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 and he was just a person that everybody admired. Yeah, but, but no, nobody stepped up. There was one, what mm-hmm. happened was an, an ex-partner of mine started to work for a guy named Phil Anschutz, who oh. is a big oil man, yeah. a, big, a, a billionaire. Who decided to come to Hollywood, you know, out of, out of, you know, and want to do something else? He didn't want to do something else. He was always doing what he was doing, but he wanted to also make it in Hollywood. And and uh, Phil Anschutz loved Ray Charles. Uh, you know, we went there with this project. He said, "I'll make the film," and he made the film. We had no, he he out of his own pocket, he put down like thirty-three million dollars. Wow. wow. Now he could do it. But still, that's balls. Yeah, yeah and that's no, balls. nobody at the studio would ever do that. We didn't have a distributor. We came out. Uh, I finished the film. I screened it. The audience loved it, and we took it around. Now the finished film, to all the studios, they all turned it down, except for one, and that was Universal and Ron Meyer, who was running Universal, and Ron Meyer, you know, is a Jewish kid from East mm-hmm. Los Angeles sure. who was a Marine. And he'd snuck into a Ray Charles concert when it was at the Palladium when he was in junior high school. He took a couple of girls with him and snuck in. He picked up the picture. And the rest is history because the picture, you know, did extremely well. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, crazy though that once you made that movie, that's that Hollywood. people still didn't want it. That's Hollywood. It's an amazing no, they, movie. nobody knows anything and they don't see it. They, but they'll take they, credit for it later. Yeah. Well, by the way, Ron, you know, Phil Anschutz and Ron Meyer deserve credit. Yeah. Yeah. They well, well they did it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, they jumped yeah, in. Yeah. yeah. Of course. That's a great story. Well, let's talk about Devil's Advocate. Okay. I mean, each one of them has a story. The thing that was interesting about Devils was that. Um, I got a script that Warner Brothers had for years. I brought in a, 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 a collaborator of mine, Tony Gilroy, who's gone on to a very big career, but he's a great writer. He'd done uh, Dolores Claiborne with me. Love uh, that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then it, we came into Devil's Advocate, and um, you know, it, it's 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 a, I guess, a somewhat supernatural kind of piece. Mm-hmm. I wanted it. I that saw was it Keanu. as. A, Keanu. Keanu, Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino. Al Pacino. That's right. Yeah. And and it was, a, it was a, yeah, it was kind of a and Charlize strange Charlize movie in Theron, the sense yeah. it was dark. And Interesting thing about Charlize. I mean, by the way, we and we had to seduce everybody. Keanu must be very, you know, Keanu is who he is. Very smart. He had done Speed. Speed was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. He became an action hero, and they were making Speed Two and paying him fortune. He said, "I want to do Devil's Advocate." He turned that film down yeah. for less money, but still a lot. Well, you know, <laughs> and he also wanted to act with Al Pacino. Yeah. Al Pacino, I had to convince that this was like he wants to do Shakespeare. I said, "Hey, playing the devil is a Shakespearean role." <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. you know, you got, and we called him John Milton, you know, from Paradise Lost. Right. But uh, but Charlize had not. She had done one 
kind of exploitation movie called Three Days in the Valley, which what, she didn't have a big part in. She had, she had a, a cat fight. That was it. She came in, and she was obviously gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, she could act. She really could act. I believe always in giving the role to the person who's the best actor. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just it. Yeah. Now forget your cue out in society. Well, Charlize came, and I, and I was fighting it because she was so good looking. In the piece, Keanu goes to, he goes from Gainesville, Florida, where he's got his wife, to New York, and he falls for a, a very sophisticated uh, lawyer, good, beautiful, and sophisticated. But I said, who's going to leave Charlize Theron? You know? So I kept, I tested her something like six times. The poor girl. But let me tell you about something about Charlize. She's tough. She's very smart. She's very tough. And she wanted this role, and she kept coming back. And finally, I said, to hell with it. I'm giving it to the best, the person who's best for the role. I talked. I saw every you know, young actress in Hollywood for that role. She won it. She won it fair and square, and you know, she admits it today. You know, mm-hmm. That was the thing that started her out. But you know, those are things that you, know, you said are actors any different. No, when, they, when they've got that burning ambition, and Charlize definitely had a burning ambition. Yeah, it comes from within. It comes mm-hmm. from within. And, and uh, you know, so with Devil's Advocate, it was interesting because, you know, you're, you're making a film about the devil, but I really wanted to make it about narcissism in our society. Mm-hmm. Our society is, a, first of all, our society is run by lawyers, mm-hmm. and that was what it was. And, and uh, Tony wrote all these great speeches about, you know, we're the new priesthood. You know, we're coming on strong, you know, in, in terms of uh, that last scene with Pacino. Um, but at the same time, I thought it would be a fantastic satire, you know, using the, the, the legal profession as this uh, bellwether for narcissism mm-hmm. and about the fact that we all can get by with anything yeah. if we hire the right lawyer. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump knows that, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Yes, very well. <laughs> Well, I don't know. We'll see because he's run out of lawyers at this point. Yeah, there's still a lot of paperwork to push around. Trust me. <laughs> He'll use every. What are you working on now? Well, I am. I just got back from Jamaica. I'm. You know, I every now and then I make. I started making documentaries. Uh, every now and then I stop the the dramatic process and I make a documentary. I made this film called Hail Hail Rock and Roll. Chuck Berry, Hail Hail Rock and Roll, yeah. uh-huh. about Chuck Berry. Keith Richards was the musical director, which is a Believe me, that's worth a, an entire podcast. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, sure. Because Chuck Berry was come back more difficult than any Hollywood star I have ever worked with. I don't bar none. Chuck Berry was diabolical. He was he was really <laughs> difficult. Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, in those instances, I'm, I also made When We Were Kings. Uh, I didn't get credit for directing it, but I basically did. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this film about Muhammad Ali going to Zaire, and it won an Academy Award for Best Dramatic uh, Documentary. Best Dramatic Documentary. Um, so in reality, uh, uh, a friend of mine, that I've been, it's been a friend of mine for 50 years, a guy named Christopher Blackwell. You know Chris Blackwell? Oh, Island Records. Yes. And you know, I know because I had all those Grace Jones albums. And you of bet. Course, he you was bet. all over them. Chris, <laughs> he was a producer. He came yeah. up. She was just at the bowl a few weeks ago. I she know, was there a couple weeks ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Chris Blackwell is an incredible guy. I mean, he's from Jamaica. He grew up. Where kind she's of, from. Yes. But he grew up kind of from a colonial side, white mm-hmm. colonial side. Uh-huh. He lost all their money. And, and I think he's been spending a lifetime making up for it by promoting Bob Marley to the world, all that reggae music. You wouldn't know, any place you go in the world today, reggae music is a familiar sound. It's yeah. everywhere. 
wouldn't be there without Chris Blackwell. And, you know, he also has U2. He also had Cat Stevens. He right. Had, he's, his story is amazing. And he never wanted to be out front. He said to Bob Marley uh, when, they, when they first signed him, he said, I'll never take a picture with you. Bob was, well, why? Because you don't need a white guy standing next to you. You are a star. You are a king. And that's the way you should be sold to the world. And Chris is so fucking yeah. smart. But anyway, uh, he wanted me to do his documentary on his life. And I just got back from um, just uh, I'm doing a teaser to try to raise money for this uh, with UMG, Universal Music and Imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Imagine. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll get the money and I get to make it. But so it's a feature documentary. Yeah, it's a okay. feature documentary. I mean, you know, Chris is he's a feature character. Sure. Right. What I'd love to be able to do down the line, I've got a, you know, Walter Mosley is. Walter Mosley is a great uh, author, black author, um, really, really, incredibly talented guy. He and I developed a, a streaming series after I did all the stuff about streaming. <laughs> uh, developed a streaming series about the life of Louis Armstrong. Oh, and my if there's yeah, ever a story about somebody who made, you know, culture in America change, it's mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong. So, you know, maybe we'll and, you get know, a chance he to was, do it. He also spoke different languages. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was very... Louis Armstrong was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know if have you ever seen Reno, listen, Reno Wilson do Louis Armstrong. He actually did a thing. I think he was at the Geffen or a short thing. But he, it was like watching Louis Armstrong. Mm. He's amazing. Mm. And um, he's always wanted to do that. Just to, keep it, just to pitch it out there. He's always <laughs> wanted to do that role. But no, he I'm is excited an, he's about amazing. That Louis Armstrong. Keep, keep yeah. us posted. Yeah, that. that would be yeah. great. All right, so we have a little guest wrap-up okay. that we like to do. Good. We're going to shoot out some things for you. The first one's more a little more is a little more thoughtful. What bothers you most about the world today? What is that thing that sets you off? Oh, I think that um, <laughs> the whole process of uh, willful lying mm. on oh. the internet yeah. is uh, the thing that is and TV. <laughs> yeah, but but it, but really it, it really bothers me. You know, you and you've got a, a guy who got elected president just bold-faced lies. Yeah, people absorb but, that. But it, it, he used Twitter. He used social uh-huh. media. Yeah. You know, people go on social media and they just outfake. They just lie, yeah. lie, lie. Yeah. And everybody, you know, I used to be a journalist. When I was a journalist, I took it seriously. I had to get three sources before I could publish a particular fact. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was controversial, I had to get two sources and maybe three. Two I could get away with sometimes. They don't need any sources. They no. just put it out and lie. Innuendo is good for that, them. That, yeah. is, that is, I think, uh, the most destructive thing. The Internet has been a ba- great boon to our life. It's also an incredibly uh, destructive force in our life. Yeah, I agree. I, agree. I absolutely I agree. agree. All right, here is the, here is the rapid fire. Regret? Yeah, not, taking, regret. not taking director credit for um, When We Were Kings. It was offered me, and I thought I was being magnanimous, and and didn't, and uh, and I, I regret it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Indulgence. I'm a fan of indulgence. <laughs> <laughs> I love to eat. I love to drink. And all I can say is, thank God for indulgence. Otherwise, we'd be all pilgrim pilgrims. Yeah, we we don't want to go back and live the life of the pilgrims. No season. Exactly. <laughs> Fear. Fear is something that I. I think I've grown to respect, but never to cow to. I mean, as a director, that's the other thing. You, if you go on the set, of course you're terrified. But if you go on the set and you let fear manipulate you to the point where you're, you know, yeah, not able to act, destroyed. then what's the point? Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta feel fear, 
you know, do you're not going to walk into a, a lion's answer. jaws, yeah. but you also are going to be strong enough to be able to overcome that fear and and think yourself out of it. Mm-hmm. Your favorite getaway? Uh, you know, my wife and I have a place in Puglia, which is oh, the sure. heel I of the Italian. I was going to ask about that. And and uh, it's it's uh, it's not it's not a, a kind of oh let's go to. Kathmandu because I've never been there. Now we go to Puglia. That's our getaway, mm-hmm. and it's absolutely lovely, and it's really become a, a second home for us. Wow. Do you have a favorite insult? Insult. Uh, <laughs> I, I I tend to say uh, people are assholes a lot, <laughs> and they're saying, "Can't you, I'm with you, can't you come up with an is another that an insult or is that <laughs> truth?" <laughs> It's the truth. It no, is the truth. No, when you call somebody an asshole, and you got to say it like you're an asshole. Yeah, right. It, that that makes you squirm a little bit. It's just you know, it's yeah. the it's my go-to. Yeah. All right. Do you have a favorite cuss word? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> They're all equal. Yeah, I, I can use them all interchangeably. <laughs> oh, there you go. And finally, this is one that catches people off guard. Who would you invite to your death orgy? At least three people of why. Oh, four has to be four. Yeah, three is a three menage. Is a menage. Four, is four people, why? And they can be living or dead. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, uh, you, 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 that you've solved it by saying living or dead. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you can get away with it. You so you got to figure. You can invite Helen. You'll get in trouble. I, I, I could, <laughs> you got to figure. You got to, you know, Cleopatra. You're gonna have to because it oh, just just to be able to see what she was really like. Yeah, yeah. You know, she yeah. was definitely sexual, yeah. but to see what she was really like, because you know, history's written by the victors, and she was painted as a whore. Yeah, and it still involves a snake. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, you know, Julius Caesar. That would be interesting to have him there because he he had a child by her. So you know, we could see if they really did fuck her. It was right. <laughs> uh, interesting. You know. Uh, and and I'll have my wife there. There you go. All right. <laughs> four. Four. Yeah, that's the four. There you go. Well, listen, we can't thank you enough for doing this. Great. That was really interesting. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Taylor. Of course. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Music by Luca. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent in association with Spotify. 